Welcome to Church Sound Podcast. I'm your host, Samantha. And I'm James. We're audio engineers, authors, and educators. With a special focus on houses of worship. And on this episode, getting started. All right, so first up, our sponsor messages. So a special shout out, of course, to the show sponsor, K Array, whose loudspeaker solutions can be found at k-array.com. We also want to thank Digico. Their new Quantum 338 and other House of Worship solutions are available at digico.biz. Oh boy, I've had a, it's been a couple weeks. <laughs> How about yeah. for you? Uh, it's been, it, things have slowed down a little bit here. I've had a little bit more time to kind of focus on writing and developing new content. So uh, l- lots of examples to film, which is kind of my least favorite part of mm. making videos, but uh, it's going well. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of fun stuff in the pipeline. Nice. That's exciting. Yeah, uh, yeah work has been, it, it's just weird um, at like the end of summer working with um, like any European or or, or the UK uh, like countries because it's gets extremely like, it's like non-existent. Work is non-existent. <laughs> uh, is everybody taking their month long vacation then? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's, uh, you know, definitely quieter in some respects and, uh, not as quiet in other respects, uh, doing other stuff, but yeah, just, uh, quite a few weeks. So, but it's good to, you know, for us to chat and this is, this is always like a fun thing to do. So I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, me too. Okay. Our word of the day. And on this episode, it's warm. What is, what is warm? What does warm mean to you, James? Well, warm is one of those funny words. It's one of those tone feeling words, right? So it's not like my amplifier is warm, right? That's a clue that you need better ventilation. <laughs> uh, warm to me is kind of, it's got a higher proportion of low mid frequencies compared to the higher frequencies. Mm. Uh, so oftentimes people will call warm a pleasing combination of those frequency balances. Like, mm, that guitar sounds really warm. Right. Uh, yeah. as, as opposed to like muffled or boomy. Right. Uh, although those could be similar, like, you know, balances of low, mid and mm-hmm. high frequencies. Uh, one quote that I've seen on a forum is one man's warm is another man's dull. So <laughs> uh, it's yeah, it's all, you know, tone feeling words are all subjective because it's art. But uh, that's what warm means to me. Like if I had to pick a frequency to say warm, uh, I'd say like 200 Hertz, but, mm. but a wide region around there. Yeah. That's what I think of when I think about warm. Yeah. I was going to say 250, um, like just right <laughs> around that area. And I love that, that, that quote, the, you know, one man's warm is another man's dull. That's actually quite funny and, uh, very accurate. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and that's, I think kind of the fun of doing these words of the day is, is one hopefully you know words with hard definitions um we can introduce you all to but then these are there these um other words that just they're kind of we've all sort of agreed that this is a feeling we're trying to describe uh or a sensation and we've just like assigned a few letters to it it's it's quite weird it's actually quite weird but uh yeah no i agree with everything you've said warm is definitely that uh you know the high end of the lows or the low mids, um, and, and it being, yeah, it's just, 
yeah, you did a great job, but I'm trying to sit here thinking like, how would I describe warm? Um, like shy of boomy. Like I'm all, I, I don't know how to do it without using other words that are completely nonsensical. <laughs> yeah. It's like when preachers define big theological terms with other big theological terms. Yeah. It's like, all right, well, that wasn't all that helpful. Now I've got more questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. And so what's the question of the day? So what's one pro tip on workflow that you've picked up? So not necessarily a mixing trick, but something that keeps you from looking like an amateur or just straight up foolish. Yeah. Uh, for me, when we're talking about workflow, uh, it's really making sure that my layers are set up how I how I expect them to, like how I, my brain wants them to function. Um, so if I... I can like quickly go grab things with my left or my right hand and I'm not going around searching and flipping through layers for things. And that's one thing that bothers me about some consoles where you can't uh, move channels around, like where they're fixed, because that feels like I'm having to work so much harder to find things. So when I am working on a console where I can move channels around and I can basically organize it freely, I uh, really make sure that I've got the orders of things that I want um, in the areas that I want them in. So like, for instance, um, I pulled up a session file um, looking at it this morning and uh, I've got my drums and my bass typically on one layer and I'll have my like, uh, you know, band instruments on the next one. And uh, to make it easier for me, like I've kind of scooched everything into the into the middle. And let me try to describe this over a podcast. But if I've got two banks, um, I want all of my channels, whether they're being, oh, here's a way to describe it. Instead of the channels being left justified, I want them to be right justified. So I'm not, I'm not having to stretch my arm out um, as far over to the left to reach the kick or the first guitar or something like that. It's all kind of justified over to the right. So my hand uh, gets to it faster. That's really setting those layers up has been the biggest tip. And I really recommend uh, for people who are moving, especially into those digital consoles where you can move channels around is like experiment, find out what you like, you know, the options are limitless, but, uh, what about you? Oh, well, that was spoken like a true magazine editor. So thank you for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I like that, you know, like it's setting yourself up so that you're staying in your mixing brain, not in your thinking or hunting brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, I've demoed consoles before and like, you know, I try to get my first gut reaction, like how quickly can I get to what I need to get to, to make this happen? Because you're trying to stay in a moment where you're like responding to something that you're feeling coming mm -hmm. from the mix. You don't want to go into like, oh, shucks, where's this layer? Or how do I get to that parameter? Yeah. yeah. Uh, keeping stuff kind of top level is really helpful. One pro tip that I picked up, uh, which is obviously from a mistake that I've made, <laughs> is if you're kind of queuing up a video to test it and there's already people in the room, listen in headphones, not over the speakers. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you can EQ stuff in headphones just fine. You know, like you just make sure the level's there, that noise isn't out of control. Uh, but if you do that, that's going to help uh, the audience not really like see behind the curtain, so to speak. Mm. You know, they're not realizing, oh, they're still setting stuff up. Are they not prepared? You know, uh you know, that, that was really helpful for me to, to figure out, oh, I can, I can just do this in headphones. I don't have to push it up for everybody to hear that one clip of the announcement video. And then they're kind of like, huh, what is something going on now? Mm. So. Ooh, good point. I like that because it does bother me at times. I've been to many a church where, uh, 
they sort of like let people wander in uh, before service starts or while we're still having rehearsal. And to me, that kind of like breaks the illusion. You know, maybe that's just me, but uh, that does bother me at times. Like, man, if we're kind of spoiling the fun here and uh, it'd be cool if we didn't. <laughs> yeah. And you think about like, you know, you're working hard and we're all working hard to, to make a presentation for them. You know, and, and kind mm-hmm. of keeping that presentation clean, just like you would have the, you know, the bushes out in front of the church trimmed, you know, and the the mulch mm-hmm. beds weeded and stuff like that. It's those little things that say, hey, I care about what you experience when you're here. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily that we're uh, trying to put on a show or be like, nobody can see in before we start or nobody can see my my rough and uh, rough and ugly side before we get started. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's just one of those things that, that makes people feel you know, they, they won't notice when you do it the right way, of course. Uh, but when you take the time to care about those little things, I think it matters for people who are visiting longtime members, all that stuff. Yeah. All righty. So today's topic, getting started, that could mean so many things. And honestly, this could be like a six episode arch if we really wanted it to, but, uh, I wanted to do this topic because I've just been, we pull our ideas from real life. Right. Uh, and so lately I've been helping people, uh, not go from like intermediate to advanced, but, um, from like, I just started volunteering to becoming semi-proficient at the consoles and stuff. So I wanted to create this topic or this episode for us so that we could talk about what it's like and what's, what's really important on getting started for those just entering into audio for houses of worship. And, Obviously, this is not going to be an exhaustive list or a guide. And James and I have done a ton of writing and teaching. James has like a million amazing videos, which are uh, linked in the show notes that I always recommend you folks check out. But I think we'll hit some pretty important points um, that are going to be good for just all engineers to have down. Yeah, when you master the basics, that shows maturity. And so even if you're kind of a pro engineer and you've been doing this a long time, it's just really good to revisit like, you know, instead of what's the latest plug-in or how can I improve the phase response between these two mics on the guitar cabinet, like remembering that the the very basics are the most important part to get right. You know, that'll get you to 85% of your mix. If you just master a few simple things, then you get to realize, okay, these other things that I've been stressing about, they're not such a big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some of the topics we'll be talking about today, uh, gain structure, High pass filters. We'll talk about mic placement, general levels and balancing, um, and mutes and cues and things of that sort. So, just so you know what you're about to listen to. Uh, so, okay, the two most important topics uh, for any mixer to understand are gain structure and high pass filters. In my humble, personal, and professional opinion. Um, so, in theory, I believe if if everything else is great or is perfect. Uh, all our jobs is to do is to really balance the inputs uh, and amplify them. And of course, that's never actually what ends up happening. But if we can get if we can nail down like gain structure and high pass filtering, which I think really speaks to how like analog consoles were really like built to function, if we can get those down, you know, it's at least like 50% of the way. So, okay, gain structure. What about gain structure do you think is important, James. Well, I think when you're talking about audio engineering, right, we're just making stuff louder. You know, there's that 
post yeah. that floats around on social media that's like, explain to me poorly what you do for your job. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, I make wiggling elect or wiggling air molecules wiggle bigger and better, you know? <laughs> uh, so we're just trying to turn stuff up and turn stuff down. But there's an order and different ways that we turn them down and they all affect one another. So it's like, uh, you've got a math problem of plus three, plus, plus five, plus seven, doing that in the right order and keeping stuff, um, so that you're turning it up at the right spot in the right way so that everything else down the line, uh, is functioning and operating as its best self. So, uh, if we're going to keep it simple, right, the, we have on our console, a mic preamp, and then we have the console's output. And then on the speaker side, we have the power amp, right? If that power amp for the speakers is turned up way too high, then we're not going to turn up our mic preamp very much. And it's going to be very loud. Mm -hmm. That creates problems because there's other stuff in between like monitor sends or sub mixes and things like that, that have to operate at a certain level to function. So if you get your gain structure out of balance, right, you're creating problems for yourself. And uh, that's why we have to go through things systematically and kind of understand what's going to happen if I turn it up here versus another spot along the way. Mm -hmm. And it, I think you kind of pointed towards this is uh, there are basically gain points all along our signal chain. Uh, in the console alone, there's probably six or seven different places you can, you know, quote, turn something up. And when we're talking about gain, for those that are just kind of hearing these, this phrase for the first time, gain is really our ability to, I mean, historically, adjust the level in an upwards fashion, turning it up, um, it, you know, electronically or electrically, um, so that we can process it and do other stuff with it, you know, essentially making it loud, like we were talking about earlier. Um, now we kind of use gain a little bit more freely. Uh, it can be an attenuation or, um, like an augmentation of a level. And so you'll see things like, uh, head amp gain, uh, trim, uh, makeup gain. Like you'll see all these different kind of phrases and they all sort of point to the same thing. Uh, there's some nuance there, but we won't, we don't need to get that into that right now. But uh, so when we're talking about gain structure, we're talking about the balance between all of these points where we can change the level along our entire chain of the signal. That That's what we mean. With gain structure, uh, first, of course, we have really the head amp or the preamp or however you'd like to uh, kind of think about it. That's usually our first stop is making sure that the level from either the instrument or the microphone that we're getting in um, is and you said this earlier, is kind of uh, optimum or nominal. And you'll, they're typically always marked with uh, either a little little dash or um, it might be like a zero. If we're talking about a fader, it's uh, the zero line is called unity. That's nominal. Or if it's a true like gain pot, uh, it will actually zero, like it being turned all the way down is, you know, quote, nominal. <laughs> but uh, it but if we can get all of our points along the way to kind of hover around nominal, um, then super. Then we'll have really good gain structure. No one particular point in the chain will be influencing the signal uh, more so than the others. Why should you care? That means that you can keep things from either clipping or adding in too much noise electronically along the way. So we're trying to keep the signal um, as unimpeded and as quality 
do, you know, in reference to the original product as we possibly can. What a way to describe it. (laughs) Yeah. I think one other thing to remember is that, uh, you know, we're talking about stuff on the board, but there's even stuff, you know, at the sound source that affects our gain structure. Mm -hmm. So you think about how loud or quiet a singer is singing, uh, or you think about an electric guitar player and how loud they've turned up their amp, right? So the sound source itself is a point in the gain structure that has nothing to do with the sound system per se, but it feeds into everything kind of down the line. Uh, Another thing to think about with gain structure is just the linearity of it all. So, uh, you know, we, I try to think of it as like a stream or something that's coming out of uh, a hose. So if you've got a fire hydrant and that has uh, attached to it a hose and there's different points where you can send from that hose to a spigot for a sprinkler or something's going to a water fountain, you can have different destinations along the way. And you can imagine like our uh, gain stages as a pump or a way to increase the pressure uh, along that hose in different spots. Mm -hmm. So if like the, you know, the signal coming from on stage is like the pressure that's coming from the water company, right? At the place where you are at the soundboard, you don't have a lot of direct control over that. But if you have control over that initial fire hydrant and that uh, that uh, amount of flow coming from that fire hydrant, that's a lot like your preamp or your gain knob at the very beginning of the gain structure hmm. where you have the most control. Again, relationally and uh, you know socially, you can encourage your bandmates to uh, you know turn stuff up or turn stuff down to make better gain structure for everybody. But you, you th- have to think of it as an entire system where one piece plays off the rest of them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you actually mentioned this right as we started talking about gain structure, but uh, if you're, let's say you're, you're kind of getting things set up quote nominally, uh, you're getting a good level into the, into the preamp, the guitars are set correctly, like, you know, so far so good. And then when you start bringing up your faders and you're getting like to negative 40 or negative 30 uh, on your faders and in your uh, master fader is down 15 decibels or something like that. Uh, and it's blasting in, in the, in the room. It's typically a sign that your, that your amps for your speakers are a little bit hot. I see that incredibly often. Like, I don't know why that's the default, but they're just like, Oh, well, let's not, let's not use the board for what it's built. Like let's use these amps. Like let's really, let's blast those. So if you're, if you're setting this up and you say, well, I'm, I'm doing what I've read about, um, on person web or I've been watching videos and I'm setting up this game structure, but like, this is like making my ears bleed. Uh, you need to turn it down someplace. (laughs) So, and typically that the best spot, the first spot I would recommend looking at is, uh, the amps, uh, whether you have a active set of speakers and it's just a little knob on the back or they're genuine amplifiers like in a rack someplace turning them down there uh the next best place is your master fader that's typically what's recommended as opposed to doing ten thousand tiny adjustments uh, just bringing your master fader down a little bit uh, can help quite a bit yeah and even some consoles have a trim on the output of their main output Mm. So like there can be a little you know, like tiny knob on the back 
or you can just pull that down a little bit uh, and kind of get things fine-tuned that way. Is that the best place to do it? No. But let's say you've got a complicated system with lots of front fills and side mm-hmm. fills and different amplifiers. To turn all of those down by the same amount gets tricky. And, yeah. uh, you know, if you're in this getting started phase, that might not be the best place to do it. Um, you know, then I would kind of reach for my master fader or uh, maybe there's an attenuator inside the EQ mm-hmm. uh, that you can do that's kind of, you know, hidden away. Uh, so that, you know, not everybody that's just playing with stuff or somebody that knows enough and would put the master fader at zero, then blows people away by accident. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes it can be helpful to find a place to do it that's a little bit more hidden and keeps it uh, more streamlined for the user that knows less than you. Yes, for sure. Because uh, you don't want a lot of level changes between uh, mixers or between like services, uh, on the weekends because people kind of get used to like, I, I know what to expect. Uh, even though their ears aren't like prepared to hear it, if they know that that's what it's going to be at, they can, they're sort of prepping themselves. And if somebody, the next person just totally blasts it, uh, or the other way, it's so quiet that nobody can hear anything. You know, it's just a good idea to, to hit roughly the same space, um, every single service, but that's a whole conversation on SPL. And <laughs> yeah, consistency between services. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's one thing that I know a lot of churches do struggle with is they want to have consistency week to week and different volunteers and mm. stuff. So the more streamlined you can make the gain structure, the more you can have uh, a clear idea. Yeah. And you want to have people to have a clear idea of what to expect when they do X, Y, Z with their console and their workflow. Okay. So that was, that's the first one of my two my two most important things that I'm, when I'm teaching somebody is like, you've walked up to this. I don't know who's told you about what else, but we're going to go over these two things. So I we can agree that we're on the same page. So gain structure is that first one. And then the next one is high pass filters. You should never be afraid to use a high pass filter. What is a high pass filter? Sometimes it's called a low cut. Uh, basically this filter means that the higher frequencies above it get to pass through. So it's high frequency pass through filter. Um, or on some consoles, like I said, it's called a low cut, which makes more like logical sense for our brains, but they are the same thing. Um, and its job is to essentially uh, cut off or diminish frequencies below a certain threshold. It's usually defined by uh, a negative three decibel amount. So that's the like corner frequency. So but if you have your uh, high pass filter set at 100 hertz, uh, at 100, it's three decibels down. Um, from where it would normally be sitting. So with high pass filters, their main job is to really like cut out anything that's not supposed to be occurring in the microphone. It's not really meant to use to change the timbre or the feel or the vibe of the instrument. That's not its job. We're trying to eliminate things that should not be in there. So mic stand rumble, um, vibrations from uh, other places, the kick drum or bass amp behind a singer that's bleeding in things like that. Um, and so getting that high p- pass filter set, it's going to end up being on almost every single channel. There could be an argument to be made, uh, that it's on every single channel. Yeah. I'm an every single channel high pass filter kind of guy. Um, uh, even like video playback, I want mm-hmm. at least a little bit, uh, in case somebody, you know, made a video and they, there was a, a puff of air that hit that microphone and mm-hmm. nobody noticed it. And now that we're putting it through subs, now everybody knows that it's there. Um, the other thing to 
know about high-pass filters is they happen at a slope of decibels per octave. Mm -hmm. So uh, a common one is 12 decibels per octave. Let's use 100 hertz as our uh, example. Nice clean number. Yeah, especially because we're going to be dividing. Well, so oh, oh heavens. Octaves in frequencies are a doubling or a halving, having whatever that word is. <laughs> that didn't make it to the word of the day, so I don't know how to say it. Uh, <laughs> of that frequency in hertz. So if we have 100 cycles per second, one octave up from that is 200 hertz. One octave down from that is 50 hertz. And two octaves down from that is 25 hertz. So if we have 12 dB per octave, all right, everybody get out your napkin to scratch down some math, <laughs> right? If we're already down 3 dB at 100 hertz, at 50 hertz, and it's 12 dB per octave, we will be turning that level down by 15 dB. That's right. <laughs> negative 3, negative 12 equals negative 15. We go down to 25 hertz, which you probably don't want much of that in your mix. Um, your subs probably can't really handle it well. Uh, it's useful. It's audible. But uh, in most of your inputs, you don't want that. Then we would be another 12 dB down from that point that we were at 50 hertz. Now we've turned it down to negative 27. Hmm. There we go. Math in the morning. Uh, so you can see we're not just eliminating everything below that frequency when we set the uh, high pass filter at 100 hertz. But we are gradually turning it down the lower that we go. Uh, you could have a higher slope, um, like 18 dB per octave or 24 dB per octave. Uh, and those have their pros and cons, but you know it's just a, a good way to get rid of a lot of unwanted low end. And if you can just get rid of the mud out of an input really quickly, the high pass filter is the way to do it. And it's just one knob. So uh, one thing that I teach people when I'm teaching them how to run the high pass filter is turn it up a little bit. And it's helpful to know kind of the lowest frequency that that instrument is going to create mm -hmm. normally. And set it at about that frequency. For guitars in standard tuning, their lowest note is 82 hertz. So you put your high pass filter at 75 or 80, and you know that's going to be fine. What I teach people to do when they're learning how to hear the high pass filter is you turn it up until you notice, okay, that sounds really thin and weird. Then you back it back down. So you can know kind of what your guardrail is of like, how far can I take this before I start to ruin things? Mm. And so know like, okay, I can't go that high, but I can, you know, it sounded all right in between there. So between that lowest note of that instrument and that point where it sounds thin and weird, that's kind of the room you have to play with where to set the high pass filter. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I also do that, but I'll have them grab a pair of headphones uh, because this is easy to do. It's it's actually great to do in a pair of headphones uh, because you are kind of being a little bit surgical about this. Uh, so if you have a variable high pass filter, so you can change the frequency of it. On some consoles, it's just, it's either in or it's out. On analog consoles, it's, it is what it was. So, uh, uh, but here, if we've got that variable, we can change it is I'll have them, um, you know, first, so we're stepping up to the board with that gain structure thing we've been over. I always tell them like, okay, make sure this is like kissing yellow, uh, on the meter for the input. That's usually, it seems to be every brand has decided that, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, yellow was the, when it just starts to hit yellow, that's nominal. So I always say, okay, it's kissing yellow. Great. We've got all of those nailed down. Now let's do the high pass filters, put on these headphones and uh, play with it and turn it up. Just like you were saying, James, turn it up all the way until maybe not all the way, but keep turning it up until you are hearing a timbre change. Like this is, I am, I am influencing how this sounds now. I'm taking something away. It just doesn't sound it probably doesn't sound quite as full, um, uh, among other things. Try to find that point and then back it off. Uh, go down a little bit until you can really, you can tell you're cutting out something, but it's not a negative influence on the input. And then super important is A-being, is popping in that filter in and out to see if you are um, truly making a, a good difference in the input or if you're influencing it in a negative way. Doing that A-B testing is so important pretty much throughout when you're doing EQ or um, high pass filters or, or so many things is making sure that you're not letting your brain trick you into thinking you've done something amazing um, until you pop that in and out. Um, I'll even close my eyes and I'll do my high pass filters that way just to make sure like, yep, that sounds good. Nope. I'm, I'm just cutting out gross stuff, sensational, and I can move on to the next input. That's how, that's how I, how I do it and how I teach other people to do it. Eventually you don't need to put on headphones as much. You can, you, you understand uh, what the instrument sounds like, and you can kind of make some some good educated guesses. Yeah, another note about a being your you know changes that you're making. It also helps you verify that you're on the right channel, uh, because oh, more man. than once I have been turning the knob on the adjacent channel or had the wrong channel selected, and I think, oh yeah, that sounds much clearer now. And then I look down and oh, I I yeah. wasn't in the right spot. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, a real thing that happens. Yeah, it's amazing what we're able to trick ourselves into thinking is happening. It's it's crazy. Okay, so then we've got mic placement. We've talked about gain structure. We've talked about high-pass filters. Uh, but now the next kind of big thing to understand when we're getting started is mic placement. You know, mic choices are important. I'm not here to, to shame my companies. There are sensational mics out there at all different kinds of price points. But I'm also here to say that it can only impart like so much change. Like there's a finite amount of change that we can pull um, between microphones. Uh, but what is not so finite is how we place the microphones. And I would wager that the placement of these mics, you know, might make up maybe like 80% of, of the sound you're going to get out of it is how you're placing that mic. I don't know if I would go that high in the percentage, but I do agree that putting it in the right spot is really critical. You can make whatever mic you have work if you know how to make the mic placement work for you. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, that has a little, you know, asterisk by it and like most of the time, you know, like it depends, you know, mm -hmm. like you can't make uh, a tiny, you know, miniature lavalier microphone sound like a kick drum microphone yeah uh, but if it's a mic that's suited for that type of input uh mic placement does actually play a big role in uh in capturing that input the way that it should be captured mm. uh, one thing that we have to think about in live sound is that we're usually in a noisy environment now this has gotten better with people moving toward in-ear monitors and you've got, um, you know, speaker systems that are more directional. Uh, but stage is still a pretty noisy place. And we're trying to, you know, amplify the right sounds and not amplify the wrong sounds, right? That's kind of the idea of yeah. a signal to noise ratio. 
right? Even though you want to hear the drums, you don't necessarily want to hear the drums when you push up the guitar microphone. Yeah. So a lot of times in live sound, we're getting very close to the sound source to make sure that we don't have to turn up that mic so much that it's also turning up the stuff around it. Mm -hmm. So uh, getting your mic very close to the sound source uh, does help you get more of a direct sound that might not be the same kind of natural um, kind of airy feeling that you'd get if you had the opportunity to be in a studio where you can uh, pick up those reflections in a pleasing way and Mm -hmm. everything else is quiet around it. But we don't have that luxury when we're running live sound. A lot of times it's get the mic in front of the input, uh, make sure that it's in the right spot, but you're not getting to like, uh, you know, experiment with, you know, ambient microphones around it or pull the microphone back to see if that feels good. You're just trying to get it in there as close as you can without it sounding too choked off, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, there is a point where you can get too close to an input and then you're not kind of capturing the whole thing. It's kind of like you've taken a microscope and you're looking at one tiny portion of the instrument and the way that it's resonating or the speaker cone or whatever. Uh, But if you can find that sweet spot that's usually pretty close by, uh, then you can get into working the parameters of how the microphones behave in mic placement techniques. Mm-hmm. I, I will agree with you that perhaps 80% it, it might be a little bit high, but uh, uh, <laughs> understanding that, and I like that you mentioned this, that we're, as much as we're trying to capture something, we're also trying to not capture something else. Um, and that, so our mic placement, and I don't think houses of worship do this enough, like really sit down and experiment. This is not something that you can like simulate. It's not a virtual sound check where you can just come in and noodle away and spend however many hours you'd like to. This requires like real human beings to be standing there and making noise for long periods of time so that we can, uh, swap out microphones or more, more to this point is uh, placing microphones appropriately, uh, especially on standstill instruments like drum kits or guitar amps. Uh, we can really kind of, uh, you know, we're in a, we live in a three-dimensional world, right? So we can move this mic around uh, and try to capture it in, in so many different ways. That's why it's kind of an infinite amount of possibilities that we can change and do. And then you start talking about combining mics or swapping mics out. And that, you know, is just becomes exponentially large. Uh, but then we've got things like, you know, singers and they're holding, uh, for the most part, they're, they're probably holding their microphone the entire time. So working with them on placement, I've had to teach many a singer, like how I need them to be using the microphone, how to hold it, how close to their face to hold it, uh, when to pull back like having those conversations as well. Like this process of mic placement can be tedious, but it does make such a significant difference. Yeah. You think about, you know, our analogy of the gain structure being, you know, we've got stuff at the very beginning affecting everything else down the line. And this is the, the place where we're capturing those wiggling air molecules and turning them into wiggling electrons. And there's Mm -hmm. no other place in the sound system that we're doing that one part. Uh, And that affects the tone, that affects the dynamics that you get, it affects the noise uh, to really, you know, focus in on and get right stuff at the source. Uh, You can eliminate a lot of problems and fix kind of tone issues 
if you can do it with mic placement, if you can get do it with, you know, getting the right mic choice. Hmm. And, you know, to echo your comment, the the singers and the way that they capture their voice uh, really matters. You got to remember the singers on the worship team and the pastor are your, you know, two most important inputs that you have. Because when people hear and understand what's being sung and what's being said, they can participate and agree. And so when your singer uh, places the microphone in a way that doesn't make it sound more muffled, Mm -hmm. uh, when they stay in the microphone so that you're not pushing up more drums that uh, mess with intelligibility, you know, those, those little baby steps are going to be the things that make it a lot easier for you to accomplish your job, which is to help people, you know, engage with the worship meeting that you're, uh, that you're trying to run. Um, so, you know, singers staying close up to the microphone for the most part is a good thing. Uh, not singing over the top of it, like Mm. it's an ice cream cone. (laughs) Um, you know, if you walk up to a singer and talk into their microphone straight on so that it's like kind of pointing toward the back of your throat. And then as you're talking to them and they're hearing it through the sound system, you turn that microphone and point it up toward their nose or even up at the sky. Mm. And they hear how that tone changes. They're all of a sudden going to get a little bit more, you know, uh, more careful about the way that they point that microphone because it matters the way that their tone comes across, you know, like as singers, they've spent a lot of time, we hope, uh, working on their tone, working on resonance and pitch and all these different things. You don't want to just take all that and throw it out the window with the mic pointing in the right spot. Or maybe you take the microphone and you're pointing it, you know, at your lips, straight to the back of your throat, and then you move it off to the side of your mouth. And, you know, you've, you know, you've probably seen a singer, you know, have the microphone off to the side of their mouth. They can hear how that gets darker and more muffled all Mm -hmm. of a sudden. So when they hear those changes and they think either consciously or subconsciously, I don't want to make my voice sound like that, or I don't want to take the color of my voice and put that over it, you know, then they're more likely to uh, be more careful and hopefully diligent about keeping great mic technique. Mm, yeah, no, I love doing that as well as really showing them. I'll do this with pastors too. Um, or anybody who speaks a lot during the service is like, all right, let me, like, you just stand over here and I'm going to do some stuff. Maybe I've seen you do, or, uh, some stuff I've seen other people do so that they can hear for themselves. Like, yep, this is, this is what happens when you drop your arm and you hold the microphone, uh, at your stomach. This is what it sounds like. And this is why it's so painful and why I'm waving at you from the back. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And um, aside from uh, singers, you know, I'd mentioned earlier, like we're trying to reject things as well, is understanding uh, polar patterns or pickup patterns um, of these microphones and knowing where they want to be pointed, essentially, and where they reject sound the most. Uh, you can look up any, if it doesn't come with, actually, it absolutely should come with documentation. Any microphone you get should come with documentation, including a, a, a polar pickup pattern. But you could also just Google it. It's not like it's hidden information. This is a very vital and important piece of information uh, for microphones. And understanding, again, how they want to be picked up, like um, where they're rejecting things the best. And that will influence how you're pointing things. So like I think about 
I mean, how many microphones are we putting on a, on a drum kit, for instance, is, you know, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm not getting so much bleed and everything that it just becomes a kind of blob of sound and that I've got no control over, you know, maybe I make some adjustments to the mic. So they're rejecting the cymbals or the toms, uh, things of that nature. Yeah. You typically need less hi-hat in your snare most all the time. Most every single time. (laughs) uh, And especially with drummers that are hitting their hi-hat much harder than they need to, uh, you know, using your mic placement, choosing the right mic polar pattern to get rid of as much of that snare, or excuse me, um, as much of that hi-hat out of the snare as possible. It's going to make your job when you go back to the the board, it's going to be a lot easier where you're not saying, oh, I need more of the backbeat right here, but man, I'm just getting more cymbal wash when I do that. Uh, Mic placement is going to be the place where you're going to solve that and teaching your drummer to not take out their anger management issues on the hi-hat is going to help it too. Yeah. 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 So really, I mean, try to set aside some time either during a rehearsal or just like a special session just to do mic placement and, you know, undo all of the EQ um, and just listen, listen to how the instrument is sounds just in the room by itself. Um, and then with the microphones, making some slight adjustments, really listening and kind of being discerning. And uh, again, if we nail this, like you would hopefully not have to do any EQ other than a high pass filter um, or very little, very minor, minor changes to get it to fit inside of the mix rather than trying to change how this, the sound of the instrument sounds at the source. All right, next up, general levels and balancing. So this is my argument that this is the artsy part of what we do, uh, that this is like, we're able to put a little bit of ourselves Uh, into this. And it's always, it's something that's always changing. Like this is the very active part of the mixing. This is the quote fun part of what we do. We've done all this other stuff as kind of uh, fixes or band-aids or to make making slight adjustments. And this is doing levels and balancing between instruments. This is suddenly like, this is the mixing to which we're all referring. Yeah. The, this is the part that's that's tricky to teach somebody without having to listen to examples Mm. of what it's like. Uh, Often uh, when you're teaching somebody new to run sound, this idea of what should the relationship be between these instruments is a new thing that many of them haven't thought of. Uh, If they're coming from a musical background. And this was our question um, in a recent episode. Yeah. So if they're, if they're uh, coming from a musical background, they have listened critically to instruments and kind of how they play off one another in the arrangement. And again, this is where you as the sound tech become an extension of the arrangement in the band. You're seeing how the different instruments work together in the mix rather than, okay, is, is this audible? Is this audible? Is this audible? Mm -hmm. That's kind of like the rough first step. Uh, When you're getting fine tuned and it's okay, how is the guitar relating to the piano? Hmm. How is the guitar and the piano relating to the bass guitar? Or uh, all these different level relationships are what's important. You know, if the drummer goes to play a, a tom fill and the high tom is really loud and the low tom is non-existent, that's where if you're going to miss that kind of punctuation that you need on that drum fill if you don't have that those toms balanced. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like somebody says a, a phrase with emphasis on the wrong syllable. You know, it, it's it's going to be a little bit 
out of place uh, from what (laughs) from what people expect to hear on the other end. So uh, learning how to do this requires taking a look and kind of copying the masters, so to speak. Or what has made people happy in the first place with the balance of these instruments? And then now that I'm in control, how do I do this? You know, we get into things like what I call the console fog, where suddenly when you're at the controls, you lose all idea of what the reference should be like. Mm. Uh, You get this like, you know, this thing is screaming in the back of your head. How loud should this be right now? Like, uh, you know, thinking about the the musical dynamics of, you know, placing levels and then also doing the balance relationship between the inputs. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that I think is really helpful as you're getting started is imagining listening to that input and that singer in a room acoustically. So let's say you're setting up and you're getting your sound check dialed in uh, and you're trying to get balance and you're trying to get levels right. And you're, you've got that question, how loud should this be right now? Uh, If you can start with just say a piano and a vocal or a guitar and a vocal, and you thought to yourself, if I was in a small coffee shop and I was just hearing this person acoustically, how loud would that be? What would that feel like? What would the balance be between these? And kind of setting that for your, this is my stripped down Mm -hmm. balance. And then as you go, other things build on top of that. Like if you were, again, in a small coffee shop or something and there was a band playing and they just had their amps on stage and there were drums, how loud would that feel? And that kind of gives you an idea of a roadmap so that you're not starting uh, with stuff too loud. Maybe you've got a good balance of the piano and the vocal, but you started with it at your maximum level as opposed to uh, giving room to grow when other inputs come in. Uh, that's really helpful to think about. Like when you're setting balance and levels, it's not just this is the right level for this instrument. It's at this time with the dynamics that they're playing in the song, this is the right level for this part and kind of understanding that it's, it ebbs and flows. So the stuff that might've gone well at sound check, maybe it needs to be a little bit louder now mm-hmm. because there's people in the room singing you don't, you can't be afraid to change those balances as you're going. Yeah. I spend a pretty decent amount of time both in like just courses I've done or when I'm like one-on-one with an, with a new engineer is talking about this. And, and you mentioned it, this like intra instrumental and this inter instrumental, like sort of balance or, or adjustments where we have this idea of, of intra instrumental. So like think of like a drum kit or like a, a group of singers where I want to make sure that they are balanced between each other because we can kind of think of them as like a drum kit is arguably like one instrument. It's made up of many instruments, but it is one instrument, one sound, one drum, one sound. Um, and uh, I want to make sure that that is true uh, to what is happening. Just like you said, James, if I was standing next to it, like what would this sound like? I want to be true to that. But then I've got, so once I get all that and you can think about all those different pieces, this is how my brain functions when I we're working on that, on that workflow, you know, that we talked about at the beginning of making sure I can get to things quickly, uh, is okay. That, yep. Those sound good. Be betwixt themselves. Um, those sound good just as they are. And then we have this inter instrumental balance. So basically all the instruments between each other. So, um, the drum kit and the guitars or, 
particularly like the drum kit and the bass. Like that's a really important relationship to me, at least while I'm mixing. And I'm, I have always got my eye on that. I mean, it's so important that I, I give it its own, uh, DCA so that their relationship can remain, uh, closely aligned. And I don't need to adjust it unless I'm intentionally going out of my way to change it. Um, or like the singers on top of the band, um, that's another really important one is making sure that the singers are remaining on top of the band. They're not getting smooshed. Uh, we can uh, hear them. We can understand them. And I always keep, uh, my vocal, like if there's more than, I'll know if there's more than one vocalist, uh, I keep their mics really close by because that, if there's one thing I am constantly adjusting, it is the singers between themselves, um, and, inside of the rest of the band, because I think it is so key. Uh, and it's so fluctuating, um, you know, who's leading what and who's taking the lead. And, uh, if, if they're leading, but the, you know, the note is lower and the harmony is just kind of sticking out a little bit too much because it's higher. And that's where we're more sensitive to make that adjustment. So like, it's not uncommon that I'll always have like fingers on my vocalist mics and I'll just throughout the song, between songs, like I'm always making very tiny adjustments. Um, but that really add up to creating this, like what I hope, at least, at least I think it is this really beautiful harmony. So I'm helping them keep their balance because it's not just, you know, not every singer is classically trained and knows how to perform like just bare, like without any amplification in a room with other singers. Not everybody can do that or has had that experience. So we have to help them a little bit. Um, you know, I always say jazz musicians are like the most phenomenal because all you do, all you are taught is how to play together without amplification and just listening to each other. Um, and if anything, once you start amplifying things, it like, it, it makes it hard, <laughs> but, uh, here's kind of the inverse. So working with the singers and again, making sure that, you know, between the instruments themselves, like each individually, and then them as a group, I, I'm keeping that balance. Like I, I, cannot stress how important this is and what I, where I really think a lot of this nuance, this conversation comes in is understanding it. Just like you said, James, how loud is it supposed to be? Um, what's my reference point? And is this at the end of the day, clear and audible? Yeah. And I think, you know, in we're, we're talking about, you know, getting through basics and running sound check and running the service. Mm -hmm. I think, what you're touching on is the difference between technical mixing and musical mixing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there comes a point, like you talked about in our question of the day a couple episodes ago, uh, you know, we're having to transition from getting all the gear right to now we're trying to get the music right. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to serve that arrangement. We're trying to make sure that our most important inputs are out in front. You know, if there's a little keyboard part that gets missed, I'm not as concerned about that as I am making sure that the vocals are out in front, you know, the entire time mm -hmm. and that their balance is right and that they're not, you know, painful for anybody. You know, it can, it can be scary. I don't know if scary is the right word, but when mm -hmm. you're, when you're beginning, it can be intimidating to move the vocal faders up or down because you're afraid you're going to lose them. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, sometimes even they can be out in front and painful for somebody yeah. You know, because you didn't realize that they needed to be pulled down a little bit when they, you know, reach for that high note on the bridge. Mm. Um, you know, really keeping those vocals well balanced and kind of tucked back in the band. You know, there's this idea of the vocal pocket. 
yeah. where the vocalist connected to the band, but still out in front. Right. So I yeah, like you don't to want to be karaoke. Like, I, I, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I, you know, like, you know, they say pocket, I kind of imagine a shirt pocket where it's like the band is the shirt and then the vocals like sitting in that pocket yeah. on the, the chest. So it's out in front, but it's still connected there and making sure that that stays uh, out in front and that you've got that balance. You're paying attention to that the whole time. That really makes it a lot easier uh, to to make it so that people enjoy what they're listening to. You know, they're going to connect with vocals. And uh, I like to say that singing begets singing. So when people hear lots of vocals and they hear people singing, they're more likely to engage in singing themselves. I think that's why choirs mm-hmm. were really uh, popular in church music for a long time. Not just because we just needed more people to sing to be loud enough to lead people, but it just makes it easier to sing when you hear other people singing. You know, mm-hmm. you get less self-conscious about people hearing your voice by itself. Yeah. So, you know, keeping the vocals out in front and present in the mix, that's one of the things that's, you know, really important. The other stuff, yeah, you want to make that sound better. You want to get that supported well. But at the end of the day, get the vocals right. And then finally, we've got mutes. I mean, hit mutes and just cues in general um, are just something that's hitting the mute and unmute button, I think, can be a little bit daunting for some people. Like it's just suddenly I'm, I'm either going to cut it off or I'm going to turn it on. And that can I, there's something about it psychologically going on with it. But in particular, digital consoles are well, really even kind of analog consoles, depending on how you have the routing set up. But they have lots of hidden mutes, <laughs> things where channels or signals can be turned off or turned down. And it's really in in our best interest to either use none of them <laughs> except one, you know, just on the, on the input, uh, or really have a full understanding of where those all are and be prepared to check them. So like the first thing that comes to mind for me is DCAs. And every console like kind of shows them differently or treats the DCAs a little bit differently as far as muting goes. But it's like, I can't even. I don't even know the amount of times I've lost a channel inside of a inside of a DCA mute someplace that I didn't set up. Like it just happens all of the time. And so making sure that we are muting and unmuting, not in the middle of people talking. And I've said this many times on the podcast, is that it is worth. Like if you're going to, if you've missed a cue, like let's say we missed a cue, like oops, uh, you know, the minister popped up and started talking. Instead of just popping that mute button on. And it's suddenly cutting in and it feeling very unnatural is to really quickly drop the fader, like unmute it and bring the fader back up. And you can do that with one hand, with two fingers. I do it all the time um, to give it just that little bit of a ramp so it doesn't feel like it's such an such an awkward cut in and cut out. Uh, but really, I, I wanted to talk about mutes today because, again, that they can they can just be hidden in places and we need to make sure like, hey, did we unmute the master before the service started? Because you're going to need to do that. <laughs> I think the flip side of that is knowing that you want to keep the noise down as much as possible. And if you're trying to uh, make things not distracting, mm. uh, if you have an open microphone that's not being used, let's say the yeah. band is done and somebody's making announcements, having all of those band and vocal microphones muted or pulled down the DCAs all the way, something to get them uh you know, not making sound anymore, that's going to give everybody an audible focus on that one input that's talking right then. Uh, It's funny. I had a student one time and I was out of town and he was covering for like a chapel at this university that I was teaching at. 
and I'm getting texts like, Hey, there's feedback during the singing and we or during the speaking and we can't figure out what it is. And I'm texting back and forth. Did you check this? Did you check this? Mm. Did you check this? Finally, we figured out there was a violin microphone that was not part of a DCA group. And so he had used his DCAs to mute all the band, but that one violin microphone wasn't in a DCA, mm. so it didn't get muted. And so then during the whole speaking part until like the last five minutes, it's sitting there ringing and he's oh, going man. crazy. Uh, so, you know, know that, you know, double check that everything is muted when it should be muted so that you don't get any extraneous noises coming through. You know, that's part of the the ways to act professional is, you know, keeping stuff down when it shouldn't be making sound. You know, if not everybody needs to hear it, it's muted or it's DCA is down all the way and checking on that. Yeah. And, and I love that you made that point. Like we should be muting uh, channels when they're not being used um, unless it's about to get used really quickly or you're going to be too busy doing something else at the exact time that changeover is happening. But yeah, you can always kind of hear when there's a bunch of microphones left on, you're hearing like too much room or when you hear somebody pick up an instrument that always kind of bothers me uh, or you're having somebody sit down on the drum throne and you can hear them like pick up their sticks and stuff. Don't love that. Uh, again, that's kind of, you know, smaller, but it's all, all those little things, like you just said, that help uh, kind of help us create a more professional um, audio environment. If I can roast myself for a second, I've got a funny story about yes. that. It's more personal. So uh, I was running sound, I think it was the end of a conference. It was like the Sunday morning after our conference. And Lauren Cunningham, the guy that started Youth with a Mission, was speaking that morning. And I had gotten word from the video folks that he was going to show a video and to be ready because they didn't want any pause in between when he had like said, we're going to show the video and when the video starts. Right. So I'm like, I'm thinking ahead. I'm like, okay, I'll just go ahead and unmute that channel. Right. So I'll just have it ready to go right. so that when they go, when they start playing it from video world, it'll be ready. Uh, so then in the middle of him talking, video world decides to test the audio and they hit play for a second and while he's speaking, the voiceover from this video starts. And he was surprised and I was embarrassed. Uh, uh, he made it, you know, it was, it was lighthearted. There was no like, you know, angry texts sent afterwards. But uh, yeah, be very careful to not have open channels uh, before you know that they absolutely need to be on. Sound Podcast is part of the ProSound Web Podcast Network. I'm Samantha Potter. And I'm James Attaway. Thanks for tuning in and have an amazing service this week.